I'm excited. We're starting a new series. Um, it's always an interesting kind of moment for me, at least, when we start a new series, because on the one hand, it's, um, it's like, oh, we're finishing something, and I don't want to forget what we've been considering and have had our hearts steeped in. So on the one hand, it's like, oh, this is good. Let's not move on. But on the other hand, it's like, no, let's move on. Let's get into something else, something new that's exciting, something that is um, of God. And so we're going to begin uh, a study through a book. I love teaching through books. Um, One of the benefits of what is considered or called expository preaching and teaching is that when we go through a book, it, it really promotes a whole Bible theology because what we're doing is we're having to to take the cohesive thoughts or all the thoughts and bring them together cohesively that the writer has had. It keeps us from jumping around. It keeps us from uh, avoiding difficult texts, as we've said in the past, but it also helps us to synthesize all of what the writer is saying for us. So I love teaching through a book of the Bible. It's, it's enjoyable to study. It's enjoyable to preach through. And um, there's nothing wrong with topical teaching, but by and large, you'll find, and most of you know, if you've been with us for any amount of time, usually it's this expository preaching and teaching that we fall back on. So I'm really excited to just take First Peter. First Peter is not a long book, um, and you guys might be thankful because unlike some churches, some of those like hardcore reform churches that teach verse by verse by verse, I've heard people, no joke, teaching for a year plus just through one book by taking them. We're not going to do that. We're going to take chunks, we're going to take thoughts, and we're going to weave them all together. But I don't know how long we'll take, but it'll be a little bit of time, so I'm looking forward to it. I want to give just a, a little bit of background, and I think that's also helpful when we begin to step into a book. I'm not going to give a history lesson, but I just want to touch on some points that I believe are really relevant for us as we launch into First Peter and as we consider the theme uh, of which we're going to, or the lens of which we're going to look at First Peter. So I'll point out more in a moment, but unlike any, uh, or, or not any, but many, with the, with the exception of Ephesians, which is thought to have been kind of a circular letter, and that a letter written to a number of churches and, and circulated outside of just Ephesus itself. First Peter is written not to one church, not even to one group of people, but really it's, or even, and we're even a set of believers in a city, um, but First Peter is, is written to a number of churches who are all residing in a particular area. And it's unknown exactly what the date was that it was written. And I would just encourage you guys, and as I've encouraged you to study the scriptures, to be a student of the scriptures, get into the history. There's so much wealth of information that is present and available for us that helps us to understand better the writings that we study and consider in the scripture as it was written. And so we don't know exactly what the date was that it was written, but it's thought that perhaps at the time Peter was in Rome. And if he's in Rome, then he's at the end of his life. And they do know that Peter was martyred in 68 AD, and you guys know how he was martyred? He was crucified. Peter was crucified upside down at his request because he said he was not worthy of the crucifixion of his Savior. And so he was martyred in 68 AD. And for those of you who are younger, Peter was a literal man with historical evidence of his existence. He wrote this that we are about to give ourselves to. Um, the 
area that the churches were that he wrote within is a section called Asia Minor. It's a province called Asia Minor. Um, the churches, as we'll see in a moment, are those which are indicated on this map. Uh, this is what is modern-day Turkey now. It's written to Asia Minor. It was part of the Roman Empire, of course, at that time. And it was settled through Rome's expansion. And as Rome expanded, and, and again, I'm not a history buff, but I'm just going to give you the broad strokes. And if you can correct me later for those historians that are out there. But as Rome expanded and expanded its territory and its rule, one of the means by which they used for expansion was colonization. You guys are familiar with colonization. And so along with their expansion, what they would do is they would overtake certain areas, certain cities, certain provinces, and they would displace the rulers who were present, and they would encourage Roman citizens to migrate into areas bringing along with them their politics, their culture, their language, and obviously more than just that, their worship of pagan idols, um, their ideological perspectives, all of those things were brought with them, and thus it created areas and cities and groups of people who would sympathize towards Rome. And also along with this, you might have heard of the Pax Romana or Roman peace, the peace of Rome, that was another part of their method by which they expanded. And the Pax Romana was essentially, as they came through, they would put into place people who were Roman citizens who might not have had uh, opportunity in other cities. And they would say, listen, here's a chance for you to have natural material gains, maybe for your family to be something of notoriety. And so they would kind of incentivize people to migrate. And as part of this Pax Romana, it was they would get rid of the, you know, the ruffians on the streets, the robbers. They would clean and bring a better quality of life. And so all of this created this expansion for Rome that was sustainable, as we know, over centuries and over these large, large swaths. And essentially, most of what we see within this particular graphic here was, by and large, Roman Empire, once further down the road. And so... Peter's writing to this set of churches, and um, he is bringing to them the overarching theme is just steadfastness in suffering. And so one of the ways by which Peter was encouraging them is because as the Romans became sympathetic and as the natives to the areas became sympathetic towards Rome, slowly and slowly and slowly over a period of time, worship of Caesar became prevalent. And it became actually compulsory by the time we get to the third century, it was required that every Roman citizen come to the temple of Caesar and pay an offering once a year and declare Caesar is Lord. A verbal declaration that was required by every Roman citizen once a year. And so it was here that the Christian worship that existed as the new first century church and the early church emerged and began to flourish and began to expand. It became that Christianity and the Roman Empire, the Roman and, and uh, earthly rule came head to head with each other. And for the Christian, of course, we know that they would never say that Caesar is Lord, but it was only Christ and Christ alone. And so for the Roman citizen, the Christians seemed to be completely intolerant. That was the perspective that Romans had of Christians. They were intolerant 
of Roman culture. And not only that, but they were disloyal citizens. That's how Christians were viewed. And so this tension begins to emerge between Christianity and between the Roman culture. And as all the while, Christianity is growing and growing and growing. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands are being added to the early church and expanded throughout these provinces. And the stronger that Caesar's grip becomes on his empire, so too the stronger worship of Jesus Christ emerges amongst this until it's just coming head on. And so as time went on, the greater distinctiveness that Christianity held from Roman culture would create a greater opposition and greater pressure on the Christian church, which they would experience. And so it's here that we find the significance of First Peter, I believe, for the 21st century church, because there's a conflict that continues on that has been from the dawning of sin's age into the present day, and it's a conflict of two kingdoms. The kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of, of light and dark, the kingdom of the earth, which is Satan's kingdom, and the kingdom of God, which was established through Jesus Christ. And these two kingdoms have been in conflict with each other for century upon century upon century. And like Peter's day, the early, and in the early church's day, the first, second, and third centuries, that to live according to the teachings of Jesus Christ in this present day and age, according to the values and the ethics of the kingdom of God, to live as such people is to live in constant condemnation of the pagan culture that surrounds us. Whether we are verbally and vocalizing our condemnation or not, to live as Christians is to live in opposition of the kingdom of this age. And it doesn't necessitate even that we would be vocal, but simply just the the way that we live our life. And this is what Peter is going to get into. And while it is always, of course, about the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ruling, The message, of course, is significant. Peter is going to emphasize so much on the Christian witness, on the Christian life, on suffering in the face of adversity, on suffering for righteousness, on the visible witness of our marriage, on our marriages, of our, excuse me, contractual obligations, if you will, as he juxtaposes slaves and masters. And so this is the context that Peter is writing this letter to the churches of Asia Minor, a holy and new distinct people, he'll call them. A people that are set apart for the purposes of God, called to suffer persecution for the sake of their witness of Christ Jesus, and called to live righteous and holy in all matters of life, knowing that their suffering finds hope in a future and eternal reality. This is the intent of Peter as he writes this letter. And I just thought to begin our hearts with a realization that what the first century, while experientially what they experienced is completely different than what we experience, the nature of it, what was taking place in that time is no different than what takes place now. And I just felt the significance of this for us in this day and age. I don't believe that we need to sit and identify the conflict that wages war around us. I think we're aware. 
But I believe that the Lord is calling his church to be a church that stands fast, to be a church that remains, to be a church that is rooted and grounded in the truth of who he is and the message of which they've been given. And so we'll see that some of the major themes of Peter are first, the new identity is God's people. We're going to see that. He has much to say in the beginning of his letter. There's reassurance for God's people. Our living hope is Christ Jesus and our future inheritance. Not just our assurance, but our reassurance. Ongoingly, what are we rooted and fixed in? The witness of God's people living as visible holiness and righteousness and in submission to God and into God's established and created order. And so Peter's going to talk about submission to authority, which is pertinent to this day and age. And another theme that we'll also see is just the hope for God's people, suffering for Christ and yet our consolation in our suffering, which is Christ's victory and our future hope. And so it's right here that I want to focus us today, just as we begin, and I'm going to entitle this series Standing Firm, because I believe that this is what it requires to live faithfully to the confession and the profession that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Brothers and sisters, listen to me for a moment, please. This confession that Jesus Christ alone is Lord is what you and I are called to not only Speak in the moments when it's the easiest, but to declare through our behavior and through our visible witness, through lives that are patterned after holiness and that pursue righteousness above all. As a confession that Christ alone is Lord, that neither, it doesn't matter if it's the governor or the president or the local civic authorities, When push comes to shove, the confession of the Christian life is that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Whether it's the promotion of ideological agendas or whether it is the the pressure to buy in to philosophies of life, of the current pagan culture, the church stands with one confession, and that's Jesus Christ is Lord. See, that confession permeates down to the most minute aspect of our being. It isn't just, again, something that we come and we say together to one another or make a declaration for the Lord alone. It's how we live. Jesus Christ alone as Lord is modeled in how we speak, in how we live each and every day, how I train and raise my children, the type of employee that I am, the type of employer that I am how I love and care for and nurture my wife, how I relate to my friends, how I speak in the public sphere. All of those things are affected and have implication on how Jesus Christ is shown to be Lord through my life, right? I think sometimes we separate ourselves from that declaration when really it it goes to the very core of who we are. Let's let Jesus Christ be Lord of our life. Peter will say at the end of his letter in chapter 5, verse 12, and I just kind of want to start here. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. 
And he makes this statement, stand firm in it. This is how he closes his letter. He calls them to a remembrance that this is the truth. Stand firm within it. As the early century readers took to heart Peter's admonition, and as the gospel went out, and it's interesting if you read back even further into the history as to what, how, how they have figured that the gospel got into Asia Minor. Because as we, you might recall, Paul was kept from going into Asia. And it's thought that it might have even been from Pentecost that those who were in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost who heard Peter's initial confession after the Holy Spirit falling may have taken that message back into Asia Minor. It's super interesting when we begin to trace, and while we don't have exact specific data on, on how the gospel has reached those first century cities and provinces, it's really fascinating when you begin to just trace the gospel's effect and impact through faithful men and women and how God uses that not just to confront the spirit of the age, but also to advance the kingdom, to take ground. It's so stinking cool. I want to read something to you guys, just to this, and then we'll, we'll launch in, and I just have a, um, just kind of a brief preach that I want to give out of the first couple verses of 1 Peter 1. So as the early church readers took Peter's admonition fully to heart to stand firm, the results of this conviction would be beyond what anybody could imagine. Just listen to what one commentator says. I'm just going to read this. The picture that emerges of regions to which Peter wrote is one of vast geographical area with small cities few and far between. So in other words, they're not saying this is big metropolis. These aren't big massive cities that were affected. The residences practiced many religions, spoke several languages, and were never fully um, uh, brought into the Greco-Roman culture. And yet, this untamed region became the cradle of Christianity. From Asia Minor emerged people whose names are immortalized in Christian history. From Pontus came Aquila, the Jewish tent maker and husband of Priscilla, as well as Marcion, the wealthy ship owner and Christian dissident of the second century who resided in the prominent city of Sinope. Aquila, the famous translator of a Greek version of the Old Testament, hailed from Sinope as well. From Hierapolis in Phrygia came Epictetus. Epictetus. Sounds like that shot you get. Have you had your Epictetus shot? He was a famous Roman slave and Stoic philosopher, as well as Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis, who was repeatedly quoted by Eusebius. These are names you might have heard of, you might not have, but just continue to listen. In the fourth century came to Cappadocian fathers such as Basil, the bishop of Cappadocia's capital city, Caesarea, his brother Gregory of Nicaea, and Gregory of Nizanius, bishop of Constantinople. Listen, all three defenders of the Nicene Creed against the heresies of Arius. To this remote and developed region, the Apostle Peter writes his letter to Christians whom he addresses as visiting foreigners and resident aliens scattered across the vast reaches of Asia. We may surmise in no small part because of this letter, 
Because of Peter's faithfulness and because of the faithfulness of those who received it, well-established churches flourished in all five of these regions by A.D. 180. Their bishops attended the great councils of the 2nd through 4th centuries where the doctrines were forged that Christians hold dear yet today. I thought, that is amazing. Just Peter standing perhaps at Pentecost preaching the gospel, people hear the gospel, go back to these cities that are remote. And then years later, the gospel begins to flourish. Men and women come to Christ. And centuries down the road, here are men that have fought for significant and deep truths of the Christian faith, which you and I profess today. Just because of people's resilience. And through the admonishment of this letter of 1 Peter to stand firm in the truth. These brothers and sisters took it to heart and stood firm in the face of suffering both big and small. It's considered that some have thought that Peter's uh, first letter is filled with what has been said some impractical theology. And you might get a hint of what they mean by that as we go through it. In that someone might wonder, how do we actually live these things out that Peter is admonishing his church in? But as impractical as it might seem, I think this is the significance of it. Peter is calling the church to responses in faith. These are faith responses. These are not responses that in the natural might seem to make sense. They are responses that require us to engage with our heart as well as with our head. And that is significant because it is faith. Brothers and sisters, as you know, it's faith that sees the kingdom of God advance. It's faith that gives us the ability to stand in the face of opposition. It's faith that gives us the ability to stand fast and to persevere when all seemingly the gates of hell come against us and his church. So with this, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter. I want to, as I said, just take the first couple of verses and finish our morning was that an all right history lesson? <laughs> I, was like, I was getting so excited as I was reading. I'm like, man, this is amazing. What if one day somebody writes about the churches in the 21st century to say, man, things looked dire. But I'm telling you, like, the church in Sacramento stood firm, and they held and fought for the deep truths. And, man, we are recipients today of their faith and their resolute standing firm. Would that not be amazing? Let's do it. This is, what it. this is what we're called to in this day and age. So I was super jazzed. So here we are, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and may peace be multiplied to you. There is something that has characterized God's people since the very beginning when God called Abraham to follow him in faith, and that is the foreign and the alien nature of God's people. He opens with this statement, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Some other translations say this, to the elect who are sojourners. 
To those who reside as strangers, the New American Standard says. To God's chosen people who are living as foreigners is the New Living Translation. Brothers and sisters, foreignness is the hallmark of God's people. If you are looking for your place, for your comfort, and for your home in this day and age, in this moment in time, you will never find it. Because if you are in Christ, this is not your final destination. This is not your home. This is not where you will find acceptance. This is not where you will find comfort. This is not where you will flourish, ultimately. We are foreigners and aliens and sojourners, exiles in Christ, through Christ Jesus. God's people are different from the other people of the earth in that they have been called and distinctly set apart for God's purposes, as Peter will tell us later in his letter. And we see this distinctive from the very beginning when the Lord begins with the proclamation of separation in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, when he says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord. You know this portion well. You know this statement. You are a people holy to the Lord God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. This is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you are to be a people for his treasured possession. And just prior to that, in Deuteronomy 7, 6, the Lord has instructed the people of Israel to lay complete waste, to utterly remove the other nations whom the Lord would be giving over to them when they come into the land of promise. And he makes this requirement, or he makes, he, he says to them, he gives them this order that they are not to intermingle, that they are not to intermarry with the other nations as well, but they are to remain set apart and distinct. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Nothing has changed from God's chosen people in the beginning to us today. We are not to intermingle. We are to be set apart. We are to be distinct. And man, we could take that just statement that you have been set apart. That's consecrated. And all the imagery throughout the, the consecrated vessels within the temple and how God has purified and set them apart and made them distinct for a purpose for his purpose and for his use. All this beautiful imagery of how God's people are distinct and God's for a purpose. And so here in verse one, Peter begins with a similar declaration, tying together the reality of the old with the new. There's a reason. He's not writing to Jews, and I didn't say that. First Peter is not towards Jewish converts. He's writing to non-Jewish converts. But what he's doing, he is saying, make no mistake. He's intentionally connecting the people of the first century church to God's chosen first covenant people. You are of the same people, he is saying to them. And he's tying together this reality now that the church is composed of both Jew and Gentile, both being recipients of the new covenant. And what characterizes God's people of old, of the Old Covenant now characterizes God's people 
of the new covenant as well. And it was this type of conviction and this type of understanding that drove the early church in the face of certain adversity and suffering. But they understood that I will not find my place in this day and age, that I am God's, that I am set apart, that I am distinct, created as a treasured possession for his purposes. But brothers and sisters, I fear today that the church has lost sight of this significant truth. And I don't, I'm not being like a, a doomsdayer or a, a, a naysayer, or what would be the expression? A doomsayer? A naysdayer? I'm not being a naysdayer. No, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, it's not called not, you know, fire and brimstone here. But what I'm saying is, is when we look around us at the church today, I'm afraid that we've lost sight of this reality. I'm afraid that we've lost sight of it. And I think that the church is at risk of not only becoming uh, without distinction, but I think that the church is also unprepared for what awaits the church today. Are we prepared? Are you prepared? We can make those statements. We go like, yeah, that's true. Are you prepared in your own life? We don't know what awaits us but are our heads so just nose to the grindstone day in and day out that we are missing the fact that we are God's chosen people that have been set apart to declare his excellencies, to declare his lordship, to declare who he is and all that he is. I believe the church today in the 21st century, it's filled with compromise from time to time. Idol worship, man, has crept into the church. Worship of self, self-promotion, how, how, how good we look in appearances. Worship of earthly gains, worship of success, worship of intellectual ascension, worship of relevancy and acceptance over-contextualization of the gospel. These are delusions, yeah? Worship of personal preference. Worship of personal opinion. Compromise and concession to modern-day pagan worldly thought. Pagan reasoning. Pagan values creeping their way. Compromising the truth of, of the gospel. Compromising the distinctiveness of the church. Theological heresies, and we've talked about them before, where, where the things that we have held true for centuries upon centuries are suddenly becoming topics of debate. Does hell exist? Is scripture inerrant? Can I believe all that it is? Oh, man, I'm telling you. Where is the church that will stand? I believe it's here in Peter's letter, characterized within his words to these churches in this area, recorded throughout time as I read men and women who stood, who suffered, who were tortured, who died because of their refusal to compromise. As Revelation 12, 12 tells us, those who overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. These are the elect exiles which Peter speaks of. These are those or whom we too are called to be. 
So verses one through two, I just want to give us two quick orientations, which I believe are significant in terms of establishing our hearts to stand firm. And they're, they're identity orientations. And you know, you know what I mean by that? In other words, it's how we're fixed as individuals. They're, they're significant issues and matters and truths of identity that have to do with how we remain steadfast. And we find them here in verses one and two of these elect exiles and foreigners and sojourners and aliens. And so the first one is this. It's Peter is stating, where are you fixed, essentially is what he's addressing straight away. Where are you fixed in terms of your identity? Their first is their anchoring that is realized through their salvation. It's a salvation, as Peter describes, which was completed and it was affected within them by the totality of the Godhead. Did you pick that up as we read there in verse two? He says, it's according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture of the Trinity in salvation. And he's saying right out of the gate, this is your identity. This is who you are. It is all of God working in totality of who he is to establish you in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our identity begins as God's elect with that truth that we are foreknown and chosen by God. Can you settle that in your heart? Not out of a knowledge of what you would do. Not from a knowledge of the goodness that you would show in your own ability, but strictly because of God's love and his mercy. You were foreknown and you were chosen by God. Deuteronomy 7.7 says this, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. This is him speaking to Israel again. It's not because you were great. It wasn't because you wore those great clothes. You sang those excellent songs. No, he says, you were the fewest of all people. You were the weakest, essentially. You had the least to offer me, God says to the nation of Israel. But I chose you, he says, it's because the Lord loves you. That's why you were chosen. We were chosen, brothers and sisters, by, out of the love of God and out of his mercy towards us to be his own treasured possession. Through the foreknowledge of God, next our identity comes as those who are both regenerated and being renewed by the Spirit of God. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Romans 12, 2, the, Paul's, Paul's statement to the church in Rome is, do not be conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God will transform and conform you into his image. This is what Peter is saying. We are God's ongoing workmanship. We are not just his workmanship that he saved and chose, but ongoingly he is conforming and transforming us. It's the love of God continually towards us, right? Are you guys, am I, is this okay? Am I tracking with you guys today? Okay. Or are you tracking with me, I guess, better said? So it was according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit 
And lastly, he says, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, all of this is true, all of it is made possible, and it's fixed firmly within Christ Jesus himself. And as Janet said this morning, just in her encouragement to us, it is his blood that has purchased us for himself. We are the people whom he would not only see and choose and love and sanctify, but we are also those whom he would ransom. And we know this because we just worshiped our hearts out last Sunday because of the ransom of Christ Jesus for his people and the resurrection, thus securing us as his people for eternity. This is where Peter is anchoring us. This is where we too must be anchored to be so settled in our minds that this is who Christ has made us to be. This is where we find our identity, that we are God's, that he is at work within us, and we are fixed surely in him through all eternity. And so he's placing them firstly there, that their anchoring is realized in their salvation. And then secondly, Peter points out that a second important identity orientation is that we and they are foreigners in the world of the dispersion, he says. The dispersion, and here again, this isn't the literal dispersion. This, isn't, this is a, another attachment to God's old covenant people. They are those who have been sent out into the world as foreigners to live among it, as sojourners to reflect his character. And we think again about the the nation of Israel that wandered the desert for all of the years and how the Lord revealed his character and his might and his power through this band of people that wandered the same stinking mountain in the same valley for 40 years. And you're wondering where is their sat-nav in all of this? It's fascinating. But God, for many reasons but one being, to show himself, to reveal himself to the world, to to show his nature and his character to the nations that would look upon. Are you guys getting this? This is us. We are this people. We are of the dispersion. We are of those who have been sent out. And so this too is an intentional tying of the New Testament church to the old covenant people of God. Israel, the chosen people of God, sent out to live distinctly among the nations of the earth. Notice too, nothing has been said as of yet about the message of this people. Rather, it's an, it, it, Peter is talking about, are you familiar with the term ontological? This is an ontological point that Peter is making. It has to do with the essence of being. That's what ontology is. It's the essence of being. It's who they are, in other words. We know that when in Christ, we are made new. That's an ontological statement. Your being, who you are, your, your will, your soul, your heart has been exchanged from stone into flesh. It's the statement of being. That's what Peter is making here. It's not so much about the message at the moment yet. It's about who they are. Brothers and sisters, it's about who we are. We are fixed. And if we are fixed, then we can stand. And that's what Peter's gonna now speak into through the remainder of his letter. And he's gonna have a a lot more to say about this fact that from the essence of their being, now will flow 
how they are and how they are to act and the type of people that they are to be. But for us to begin here this morning is just to give us a great launching point as we study through this letter. And so my prayer for us just today, and I'm just going to land here real quick because we're up against it, is just to say this. Let's have our hearts awakened to the nature of the church, to our nature. We are the church. What is the essence of our being? What's the essence? What is true about who you are? Where are you fixed? Where are you anchored? Where are you placed? Are you fixed? Have you been anchored? And if not, let's resolve those things so that we, as we have all agreed, can be that church who stands firmly against whatever might come. And I don't know. Great or small, it seems like most people think it's going to be great. I know we don't like to hear that. That's hard to hear. But by and large, when we consider perhaps what the first century church faced with the colonization of areas and the expansion of the kingdom of the age and with it, its worship and its culture, its ideologies, the language that it uses, that's a natural representation of what is happening spiritually on this earth. Culture is being changed. Language is being changed. Worship seems to always be in flux. It's this thing, it's that thing, it's these things. You don't know where to go, where to worship. Let's find ourselves fixed on Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the true grace of God. We are His in Christ. He has redeemed us. He set us apart for a purpose. He's given us His Spirit to now live accordingly. Let's stand firm in it. Amen? All right, I'm just going to end there this morning. Actually, can I, I want to read just a, a text. I say that. I'm going to end. Let me read to you. Now, this was, I, I just was thinking, you know, it'll, I think I'll just close our meeting now at this point. No, no, I'm going to read and I'm going to hand it over to you. I'm going to stop telling you what I'm going to do, and I'm just going to do it. I wanted to read, though, just to, to kind of fix ourselves further. I wanted to read Ephesians chapter 3, if I can. Just a couple of um, verses. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Listen to this. This is Paul for the church in Ephesus. For this reason, I bow my knees, he says before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. This is my prayer for us, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is my prayer for us today. Amen.